dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode, a live episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's up, brother? Man, I'm always excited when we live on the mic. You never know what can happen. You know, what's funny is when we came on, we were both wearing black. And, you know, I got to <laughs> shout out We Apparel, weapparel.com, um, okay. Marie Manual. Uh, that's that's where I got this shirt. And so, but the premise is we are the ones we've been waiting for. So go nice. check them out. They're really dope. Um, but when I saw that we both had on all black, I said, oh, it's a mood now. It's a vibe. This is what we're not finna do volume two, right? It's crazy, man. We didn't even coordinate that. We didn't. And um, so as we talk about uh, today, A Quiet Exodus, the New York Times article, before we get into that, we do want to talk about where we've been. Sometimes when we've been places, we've had the opportunity to be on other podcasts or at other events. We want to shout out those people, want to give them honor for bringing us out because that is very humbling for us. I know Jamar gets it all the time. But for me, it's very humbling um, to be brought out and uh, to be invited as a guest at any event or podcast or venue. So Jamar has recently been to an awesome place and he was telling us about it. So Jamar, I want you to, to give a shout out to the people of, of, of Austin, Texas. Yes, yes. I recently went to Austin, Texas for a one day Verge intensive, which was truly intensive. It was from nine to five. I taught for basically seven hours, five different sessions. Um, it was a deliberately so, somewhat smaller event, you know, somewhere around 100 people or so. But, man, the encouragement that I got there, we got there the, for the witness and passed the mic was absolutely overwhelming. Folks mm-hmm. with tears in their eyes, introducing themselves with hugs and just thanking us for, for what we're mm-hmm. doing. And so I just passed that along to the witness team and the past the mic team, because I get to go to these places and sort of experience it firsthand, but it's really all of us working together. Nevertheless, we are so encouraged by our listeners, by our readers. And when you let us know whether that's a DM or in person or, or, or carrier pigeon, whatever it is, (laughs) we really appreciate it. It keeps us going. We share those news, that news and those stories as a team, um, we appreciate your prayers. Y'all keep us lifted up. And uh, we're just we're just constantly humbled by what God is doing through this work. Yeah. Shout out to Stu, man. Stu's really been, you know, shouting us out for years. And so yes. shout out to him over at Verge and the entire Verge team. And I guess it's my job and it's my pleasure to tell you guys where we will be passing the mic in the future. Air horn. <laughs> and, and so there's a couple of places. The first place <laughs> is Wakanda. Okay. Now, follow me here. We're going to Wakanda, and I'm really excited about this because this is a project that I kind of brainstormed with Bo probably about a year, year and a half ago. And we thought about this idea of launching a miniseries even after the film Black Panther. And so we are launching a new podcast miniseries entitled Once Upon a Time in Wakanda, and it's actually launching tomorrow. And For those of you who just want to stay in Wakanda and you want to hear some geek nerdery and you want to hear some (laughs) reflections, we go very deep. So it's not just a surface of, ah, I like this, I like that. No, we actually go very deep into the characters, their comic history, um, their film history, the way in which they are incorporated within the films, where they could go in the future. And just so you guys know, we are dropping 
all the episodes in the miniseries tomorrow. All mm. of them. It's just like Netflix. So you yeah. guys can binge, listen. You can give us your feedback. We're talking about Shuri. We're talking about M'Baku. We're talking about the Dora Milaje, T'Challa, Wakanda, all these things, and so, so much more. So you guys should go right now to Twitter and follow us at Wakanda Podcast for more updates. And you can also find us at wakandapodcast.com. Once upon a time in Wakanda, you guys do not want to miss that. And also for those of you who have been asking us, beating down our door, texting us, emailing us, calling us saying, what, what are the details for Dallas? Some of you guys know that we have a PTM live tour and our second tour stop, first tour stop was in Pensacola and we represent it. The second tour stop is going to be in Dallas, Texas. And we're announcing today that the Dallas tour stop of the PTM live tour will be at Life Point Church on Saturday, April 7th at 3 p.m. Saturday, April 7th, 3 p.m. Life Point Church, 3203 West Dallas, uh, West Davis uh, Avenue in Dallas, Texas, 75211. And it's special, Jamar, because we are actually recording, and, and no one knows this ever like a handful of people, but we are actually recording our 200th episode at the Dallas Tour Stop. 200 episodes, bro. 200. Wow, Jamar. That's How does that wild. feel? Because See, because you were here from the beginning. You were here from one. I kind of came in in, in, in the middle. <laughs> So I haven't I haven't experienced the full 200. Oh, so you got to tell me how the 200 feels, brother. It, 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 it's amazing, right? Like, I mean, we just started this. I was telling somebody not long ago, like the podcast was birthed out of a conversation uh, on a road trip. We were in the car. It was late at night. And we were just like, hey, you know, what would be dope is if we had a podcast. And then mm-hmm. to go from there to finding Bo, to finding you. And all the topics we've covered, all the listeners that we 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 have uh, who've tuned in, and then to be able to do it live, man, that's perfect. That's perfect. Man, it's amazing. And so Dallas, y'all got to show out. Now, uh, you know my homie Kevin, that LifePoint Church is his church. Uh, <laughs> he attends, and so he's like, "Look, man, y'all can't let this the people of Dallas down." And and I told him, "You can't let us down because this is big." <laughs> It's 200 episodes. So you guys got to come break out. Break out his uh, interpretive dancing. It's going to be dope. What'd you say? You, you, yeah, I know. I, oh, the I, mining? I, I, yeah. It's yeah, supposed yeah, to be a yeah. surprise that I come out mining. <laughs> That's supposed to be a surprise. Uh, but nah, man, Saturday, April 7th at 3 p.m., Life Point Church will be in Dallas. Now, so we come today to talk about this recent New York Times article um, entitled A Quiet Exodus. On why black worshipers are leaving white evangelical churches. And even though we've come to talk about this New York Times article, it's really a catalyst and it's really just one string in a strand of articles, in a tapestry of articles about evangelicalism. So there has been um, an article that ran on Forbes that was actually mysteriously taken down, um, Why White Evangelicalism is So Cruel by Chris Ladd. Um, there's also been uh, how Trump is remaking evangelicalism by Emma Green. And then I also want to shout out uh, Deborah Lee, who really was on this way before any of the other major outlets were at religiondispatches.org um, with her article, Betrayed at the Polls, Evangelicals of Color at a Crossroads. Um, so definitely want to shout out Deborah Lee. So if you want to hear a little bit more uh, deeper analysis from a person of color's perspective, Check out Deborah Lee's article at Religion Dispatches. And then another article um, is In Trump's Remarks, Black Churches See a Nation Backsliding at the New York Times by Sabri- Sabrina uh, Tabernese. 
So I want to shout out all those people. And there's so many more. I tweeted yesterday. I can't keep up with all these articles. But Jamar, I have to ask you, why do you think there's a surge of these articles right now in this place? Why do you think there's a surge of articles? Okay, so we're getting right into it. Um, Let's do it. (laughs) I think, uh, well, number one, there's a long prehistory before all of these articles came out, because black folks and other minorities have been talking about these same issues, this what I call the unholy alliance between white evangelicalism and republicanism. Mm. Minorities have been talking about this forever. You know what I'm saying? This is not a new topic for many folks. But the reason why I think we're seeing this slew of articles right now is because this president and this presidency has forced the issue in a way that minorities just haven't been able to in terms of people listening to us and responding to us. So what I think is happening right now is a white evangelical reckoning on the Mm. part of white people, right? Like black folks have been sort of hammering at the door saying, hey, this is an issue. That's an issue. Do you see how this is racist? Do you see how this is not biblical? And for many different reasons, we simply haven't been heard paid attention to, at least not on a whole like we're seeing now, but there's a national conversation because there is such a a tight and strong alliance at the polls between Mm. those who identify themselves as born again or evangelical and white and the people who vote for this particular uh, presidential candidate. And not only that, you can even look at the Alabama Senate race when Roy Moore was a candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, credibly accused of you know sexual impropriety with minors, and uh, evangelicals still voted for him at the tune of I think about eighty mm-hmm. percent. So the support hasn't waned. It goes from uh, the federal level down to the state level and beyond. So, but but because of what this president is doing and the moral questions he is bringing up, whether with his language calling you know, places in Africa as whole countries or mm-hmm. whether, um, you know, having an extramarital affair and, and hush money to cover it up. All of this stuff is is making even evangelicals who have been impervious <laughs> to, right. to uh, you know, conversations about the Republican alliance is making even white evangelicals sit up and listen and discuss. So I see these conversations as white evangelicals finally grappling with what other folks have seen for a very long time. You know, I think that's very true and perceptive, Jamar. I think especially on a political and a sociological level. I do want to pause and, and interject something here, though, that I think it's deeper even than that because we feel these things on a personal level. And there's a very human... Uh, sense of pain and mourning that's taking place right now. And whenever we post articles like this, we always get a very large group of people who respond and they say things like, I feel this, or I teared up at this. Um, This is the exact same experience that I've had. And we don't always get the opportunity to respond to those individuals specifically um, in detail in each one of the comments but, you know, I think we, we move past it too quickly. And so I just want to say to the people who are experiencing the brunt of this, not just us here at The Witness, but the people who are watching, the people who are listening to this podcast, uh, that we see you, you know, we see you and, and we hear you. And I think it's right for us to lament the loss because a lot of people are losing things. 
they're losing the church that they grew up in, or they're losing fellowship with family members, or they're losing close relationships with friends, or they're losing job opportunities, or they're losing speaking engagements for, for speaking out on these issues of justice. And so I think it's really important for us to sit back and pause and lament and say that we see you, we hear you. I mean, there are, there are women of color, there are Black women who are having to get up, gear up for church every single week, who are having to gear up for what shouldn't be a hostile environment, but is because of the intimidation, because of the threat of being silenced, of being tone policed. Um, so, so we want to say to those Black women and those women of color, we see you. Um, there are young men who are having to make very difficult decisions about where they'll go to church after going to a Bible college and coming out and, and receiving a sense of hostility that they didn't really know they were going to receive from people who were supposed to be family within the kingdom of God. So I just want to say to everyone who's out there, who's listening, who's watching, and who has interacted with these articles from a place of pain, from a place of mourning, that we here at The Witness want to invite you into lament with us because we see your pain. We feel it. We hear it. We not only sympathize, but we empathize with it. And and even, even greater than us, Christ sees your pain mm. and Christ hears your cry and Christ bottles your tears and he, he will wipe them from your eyes. And so I do want to encourage you in that regard. I think we can talk about the political implications and the sociological implications and we'll get into that. But on a base of, I think there's a surge of articles because people are feeling an intense amount of pain, Jamar. Yeah, yeah no doubt. I mean, we, <laughs> we've got our own personal stories of that. I know I do. A lot of this stuff is very recent for me um, mm-hmm. ever since the election in particular. And I'll say it's, it's taken over a year for me to really even be able to begin to talk about it because the pain was so deep and so personal. Um, talking about yeah. home churches, you talk about friendships, you're talking about, um, you know, professional partnerships, all of that has been sort of strained um, and sometimes broken. Yeah. So, so you're right. There's a human element to this that we got to acknowledge. And because of the pain and because of the proximity to the people who, who have, you know, continue to perpetuate that pain, whether knowingly or unknowingly, you know, in ignorance or intentionally, it's hard for us to talk about it. That's right. And I think that's, right. that's why it's entitled A Quiet Exodus. That's right. Because a lot of people don't feel seen, don't feel heard. Um, why do you feel like the reception to this particular New York Times article, Jamar, is different from the others? Why has this been a catalyst? Because yesterday you even talked about it, um, an article by, by Michael Gerson in The Atlantic uh, entitled The Last Temptation. And you critiqued the article for its framing. So I'd love for you to get into that and how the New York Times article and, and these other articles, some of them that we've mentioned, are a little bit different in the framing and centering. And I just want to make a brief comment on the quiet exodus part. I think it's important to recognize that one of the reasons it's quiet is, like you said, Tyler, because we're not seen and not heard. Uh, but another reason is because we respect the church so much. Like, it, I, it's hard to tell these kinds of stories because... Even though black people are hurting and in pain, when they leave, they don't want to blow up the church. They don't want to put the church on blast, not because Mm. they haven't done anything wrong, but because in terms of respecting Christ's bride and making sure that you don't slander 
um, the church with all its imperfections and you don't capitalize uh, on the sin in a church with your 15 minutes of fame. So I think that's partly why it's a quiet exit. That's why I haven't talked in specific about a lot of things that have happened to me through white evangelical spaces. Mm. And I know that's true for a lot of other people. They just were reluctant to talk, um, A, because they still have friendships and relationships they want to preserve, and B, because they don't want to be the person who just says, oh, the church is whack and everything's bad. It's not true. So it, it's is, amazing. Is that, a, is that fear of, of white lash or is that wisdom? You know, or is that fear? Yeah. Because I'm because I'm curious because you know it's one of the things. And I don't want to get you in trouble, Jamar, because he gave me that look. He was like, "Hold up, like where are you going with this?" No, I'm good. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just trying to figure out because I see that we take a lot of pain and we internalize it, and we're stressing. You know, one of the the shocking things is when I go to certain meetings or go around certain groups of of Christians or friends. We live with this. I live with this, and so I bear some of this weight and pain. Um, in a way, and and people who are connected to me bear a weight of pain in a way that stresses us out, in a way that we constantly think about, in a way that we constantly consider. And then when we get around those groups of people, we see they ain't been thinking about it at all. <laughs> and so is it wise for us to do that? Or are we fearing the backlash or white lash of what people are going to say and do based upon us truly calling the church to its to its account? You know, it's probably case by case. I'm sure for a lot of people, it's fear of man. It's 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 fear of what will happen if they truly, quote unquote, blow the whistle. And I think the closer you are to these white evangelical circles, if you're still a church member or if you're employed by some organization, the harder it is for you to to be honest about that because you got so much at stake with it. Um, but I do think there is still something that we should consider from a wisdom perspective how we bring these things up, right? So mm-hmm. it's not it's not whether we bring it up, it's how we bring it up. And and certainly in terms of like something as big as a New York Times article, we want to be very circumspect in what we say and how we say it because we don't want to give the impression, particularly to non-Christians, that there's nothing good about the church. Right. Um, and so I, that that for me is a consideration, especially as somebody who writes and speaks a lot in public about Christianity and the church in general. And I think for anybody who's who's going to put that stuff out there on the Internet or somewhere else, uh, that needs to be a consideration, not the only consideration. And, hmm. and fear shouldn't trap us into silence. Uh, but we do need to respect Christ's bride and, and whatever that means. Well, why do you think and I cut you off earlier. Why do you <laughs> think that Campbell Robertson's article okay. in The New York Times is being received differently than some of these other articles, and then talk a little bit about your your critique of Michael Gerson's uh, work in The Atlantic. Campbell Robertson, in his article, Quiet Exodus, did the hard work of centering Black people, particularly a Black woman, and her experience at a predominantly white evangelical church. And he he did the, the, the great journalistic investigative work of finding that person who could tell a representative story. So I think that's one of the things that made this article become so popular online is that a lot of Black people, when they're reading it, say, yep, that's my experience too. And so even though he's highlighting a single person, her experience is representative of many of the experiences of of other minorities. Um, 
as well as, you know, in, in relation to, to Gerson's article and the framing. So the Quiet Exodus article by Campbell Robertson framed it in terms of the tension that uh, black people feel as black people. So race was was central to that story, central to that angst. Mm. Whereas in Gerson's article, you get a brief mention at the beginning, really talking about abolition, and then a brief mention at the end. And that's just really problematic. A, because the story of evangelicalism cannot be told without race front and center. Not that that's mm. the only consideration, but my goodness, if you want to understand these political negotiations and alliances, you've got to understand how they're trying to preserve, uh, whether overtly or, or unintentionally, white the white racial hierarchy. And you've got to understand that all these critiques we've been seeing, black people and other minorities have been raising for a long time. So if if your foundation, which was Gerson's article, the way he started out was by explaining well, e- evangelicals at one time were the abolitionists. They were the ones calling society to a moral accounting and they fell from grace. And I'm just like. Yeah, I mean, even if even as we consider, you know, abolition. And I think a lot of people have used that as an example of, oh, this was when we were not racially bigoted or prejudiced. But abolitionists still held racially bigoted and prejudiced by and large held, you know, racially bigoted and and prejudiced views of African-Americans and black people and people of color. And so it was almost the same as this duality that we see in George Whitfield's life where he preaches the gospel to black people, but at the same time says that their bodies were built for the heat. So he must hire them as slaves to build an orphanage. He must, he must (laughs) preserve you know, slavery within the state of Georgia, we must preserve these, these opportunities because it's, it's this duality as many people who have come on the podcast have talked about this dual image of God that there's yes, there's a soul, but then there's also a body and we can use the body for whatever we want. Yeah. Keep it totally separate. Yeah. Yeah. Shameless plug for the color of compromise. Uh, the book I'm working on. That boy writing a book, bro. Uh, I got a whole section on Whitfield and mm. Edwards, and just got all the receipts, spill all the tea. But you're right. So, so that's my whole point, right? Like, if if you can look at the history of evangelicalism, which you can definitely trace back to the first Great Awakening in the mid 18th century, and not mention race as as like one of the primary uh, issues that that evangelicalism is confronting, and 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 really not doing very well on throughout its right. history, then you haven't told the story accurately. Now, other folks like Campbell Robertson in his article uh, are centering the experiences of Black people. And then I think you get a harder, but much more accurate picture. And so I think, you know, another thing that's very interesting is how cathartic the article was to read. And I've interacted with a lot of people who have read the article and who have kind of been through some of this uh, disillusionment with certain church expressions in American Christianity. And there was this very, very unique catharsis that the article captures um, because it really shows an evangelical blueprint for how we typically see them dealing with race. And the dealing with race and justice is always an individual, personal, situational reaction. And so it's like, hey, we, we're bringing it to you. We we make this funny cartoon about the elephant in the room, but it's also intended to be very pressing. It's also intended to catch your attention. 
or we we come to you and we complain and you see a wave of complaints and then you say oh well, well let's do let's do something about race let's let's really quickly let's do something about race and let's talk about it and then pray with each other pray pray you know and so we have this reactionary response rather than a proactive systemic inclusion within the life and health of the church so what we believe and this is something that people haven't necessarily understood about us but we believe that justice should be one of the core implications of the gospel. Thus, it should be built into discipleship. Thus, it should be built into teaching. Thus, it should be built into the life and health and mission of a church. And so because of that, we're seeing that people respond situationally and reactively. But then when when there's quote unquote peacetime, when we know there's never peacetime, but when there's quote unquote peacetime from the headlines, we sit back and we don't say anything and we don't incorporate people of color within our sermon illustrations, and we don't incorporate people of color in, in places and positions of power, and we and we only otherize them. And then we expect, oh, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal until Tamir Rice or until Jordan Edwards or until Sandra Bland, and maybe not even then. And so I think what it captures is the ways in which there's the, a difference between reactive Christianity which primarily comes from an American Western context and proactive Christianity, which would say we're going to build a fully orbed picture of the gospel that includes justice, not as the only thing, but includes justice as part of our core implications for what it means to to, to be a believer and a Christ follower. So I think that's maybe one of the things that really struck me because you can kind of see this evangelical blueprint. Some of the stuff that he said, uh, Robert Morris, the pastor of Gateway Church, who was profiled in the piece, some of the things that he said, I'm like, man, I've heard that a bunch of times, man, I can't imagine. And what's funny is there's always kind of a reverting. There's co- kind of always this default setting where yeah. people say, oh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. But you remember now, hang on now, black on black crime. <laughs> you remember now, yo, we want to give him a hand up, not a hand out. And we kind of sit back and be like, man, you're clearly not thinking through this as a level of discipleship, but you're actually thinking through this as a reactive measure to appease, you know, uh, uh, just a current controversy. Yeah. To break it down really simply, perhaps almost simplistically, you know, to, to be conservative means you want to preserve the status quo and to be progressive means you want to sort of move beyond or change the status quo. And I think when it comes to race within white evangelicalism, it is inherently conservative not even just talking politics, but talking, we want to conserve the status quo, the way our church does church, how we talk about things, what we talk about. And so you're right. It's reactive in the sense that, you know, people genuinely want to see racial progress mostly. And so when something happens, they may react uh, uh, or feel the pressure to react. Sometimes they don't, which is some of the frustration that Black um, uh, members of these churches feel. But then once the crisis has passed, it goes back to business as usual. It's inherently conservative in that sense. And people in minority positions of all sorts, whether it's because of their gender or how much money they have or their race, they are acutely attuned to the way the system does not work for certain people. And so Mm -hmm. they are inherently progressive in the sense that they say the status quo is inadequate and it's unjust. And it needs to change. And so you've got these two forces tugging at each other. And oftentimes in a predominantly white evangelical church, those conservative forces that wish to keep the status quo. And again, this doesn't have to be overt. It can be um, 
unintentional oftentimes. But those forces that want to keep the status quo often overwhelm the forces of progress and change that would lead to justice for minorities. Now, we've talked about the fact that there are a lot of, there's a surge of articles about evangelicalism and there's this this quote unquote reckoning and there's the 81% and there's all these things that we are in the cultural zeitgeist right now. Um, do, you, do you feel that there's an appropriate level of urgency about this issue? Uh, do you feel like we're really drawing attention in the right ways? And do you feel like the response, because there was something very interesting that Robert Moore said in the article, he was quoted as saying, I think there's an anger and a hurt right now and a fear. And I think that people are going to get past that. Is he right? Um, Is he (laughs) judging the situation? Because for me, that kind of seems disconnected from the reality that we're experiencing on a daily basis. So I love this quote in uh, Campbell Robertson's article uh, by Michael Emerson, who we shout out all the time. All the time. Divided by faith. Y'all should have been read it five times already. Come on now. Um, So Emerson, who's a sociologist, says this. Everything we tried is not working. um, The election itself was the single most harmful event to the whole movement of racial reconciliation in the past 30 years. It was about to completely break apart. And I love that because I think Emerson is responding with the appropriate level of alarm to this, you know, calling it, you know, the single most harmful event in the past 30 years or, or more, really. And so I think that's the level of urgency. But for this pastor who was profiled to say, oh, this will pass, this will blow over, bruh, nah. He's going to use it for a rude nah, awakening. Fam. What um, we're not going to do is. <laughs> what it reminds me of, it's like, it's, like, it's like a husband who comes home to his house and his wife, and the wife has packed all the bags. Oh, snap. Paul is in the driveway, and she ready to go. And dude's like, honey, what happened? I, wow. thought, I thought we were fine. I know we, had an, I know we had a fight, but I thought this would all blow over. And she's like, no, <laughs> these problems are deep and long, Oof. and I've been, been tried to tell you. So I think white pastors or white evangelicals who think this is all going to blow over with the next election or some magic bullet, um, they're they going to have an empty house real soon. You know, what's fascinating about this article is that it's it's filled with the revelation that all these articles kind of show us the, the revelation that many evangelicals fail to have a self-awareness, a self-awareness. And what's fascinating about that is if the Bevington quadrilateral for what an evangelical is, is to be believed at all, then one of the core tenets of evangelicalism and which I think is is true in many cases, is this idea of conversionism or, or conversion. And so conversion implies and presupposes that you have to have a level of self-awareness that you are in need of salvation. So there's a level of awareness that you are a sinner in need of a savior. That's what conversion has been framed as within an evangelical context. And it's just so fascinating to see that there seems to be a lack of awareness of our inherent sinfulness within the church. And I'm trying to figure out if we are truly evangelicals and we believe in conversion, then we should have a spiritual sense of awareness, self-awareness of our own sin. And so it's fascinating to see many evangelical churches talking about salvation and talking about repentance, but only selectively. And it's fascinating to see the ways in which that self-awareness hasn't reached race. And that kind of denies one of the foundational core tenets of what it means to be an evangelical. If you are an evangelical, you should have some sort of self-awareness. 
that says something is wrong here. And even more than that, I'm hearing the cries of my brothers and sisters, and maybe I'm unintentionally harming, harming them. And maybe they're bringing me to a necessary place of spiritual self-awareness so that I may repent and be saved out of my addiction to American evangelicalism, be saved out of my addiction to Western Christianity. And so it's fascinating to see the lack of self-awareness. Um, as I said earlier, I'm around people and I'm just like, man, you're, you're not even thinking about this? You know, is this not even on your radar? And so that's what's been most fascinating to me, Jamar, is that the lack of urgency stems from a lack of self-awareness. It is. What it reminds me of is um, in the Gospels when Jesus talks to the rich young ruler. Yes. And so, Absolutely. you know, the rich young ruler in, in this case is white people who have all of these privileges, all of these riches of whiteness in our society that give them certain advantages. And they're so sincere. Seer and they're so eager and they come to Jesus and say, I've done all these things. And then Jesus says, well, one thing you lack, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, come mm. follow me. And so notice that one thing you lack. It's crazy. That language. Anyway, go ahead. I don't yeah, want yeah, yeah, to get yeah, too that's, that's That language. You're doing evangelism, all these good things. But one thing you lack, you are holding on tightly to these earthly riches of whiteness. And Jesus says, go put down that unjust gain, because that's what whiteness is. It's not it's not it's not righteous wealth that you've accrued. Whiteness is unjust gain at the expense of people of color. Jesus says, put down all those privileges of whiteness, uh, whatever privileges you have, give them back, share them with people who don't have it and come follow me in poverty. Spiritual, social, economic poverty, as the case may be. And then what happens to the rich young ruler, just like the white evangelical church walks away sad. Because he had great possessions, he had great wealth. That's right. Hmm. That's fascinating, bro. Now, let's kind of tear away from that line of conversation, because I think people have heard us talk about white evangelicalism a lot. But we are the black, we are the black Christian collective. Thank you. Okay. We are the black Christian collective. So... We have to reckon with what this means for us outside of just reacting to racial bigotry and prejudice. And so the question that I, I've, I've been thinking about is the, the lady um, who was so brave to share her story about Gateway Church, uh, Charmaine Pruitt, I want to mention her name. Um, she was willing to be profiled. And at the beginning of the piece, it talks about how she wrote the names of 12 churches on a sheet of paper, and she tore those papers um, those pieces into little strips and put them in a Ziploc bag and basically mixed it up and said, whatever I pull out, that's a church I'm going to visit. And so it leads to this idea and this question about where we're going, which is why this is titled A New Path for Black Christians. And the question I've been thinking about is, is it really an exodus if we don't know where we're going? Is it really an exodus if we don't have a destination? So where are we going, Jamar? Like, like we're leaving this and we're talking about it and we're we're pointing out the issues and we're pointing out the considerations. But where are we going from here and what's our what's our ultimate destination? So, yeah. Is it really an exodus? Yes. In the sense of I think we're in the midst of a wilderness wandering. <laughs> right. But I mean, that's what it feels like. Right. So it feels like we're in this nomadic sense of we're going a little bit in a circle because we have all these articles that keep coming around and we have all these considerations. We're trying to free ourselves from the slavery mentality 
that we left behind, you know, not saying that white evangelicalism is Egypt. Don't, don't get me twisted here. I'm just saying, carrying the metaphor to its fullest extent, if we're saying it's Exodus, where are we going? Like, what's the destination here? I mean, okay. I mean, we getting real here, right? Like, I think this gets into some of our views of the black church as black Christians. Uh, so, mm. you know, it strikes me, right? Like, a lot of black Christians feel this way. I've felt this way that if you depart from a predominantly white evangelical context, whether that's a seminary or a church or what have you, um, but particularly to the church, why does it, why isn't the black church just the default? I knew this was going to happen. What up, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> why isn't the black church? Jack, um, that, that's the homie right there, man. That's the future, no. bro. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> why do I do all this? You <laughs> that's it. Um, uh, don't worry, Trinity's going to be doing the same thing to you. Just Absolutely, that podcast walking. coming out 2019, <laughs> I told her. Um, but it's like, it, it gets to our views of the Black church. Like, why isn't the Black church the immediate default as soon as we bounce out of a white context? And, and mm-hmm. I mean, I know you got a lot of thoughts about this, but, but you know, it could mm-hmm. be for a lot of reasons, right? Like, not every Black person was raised in the Black church. Let's just be honest, right? Some people weren't even Christians. Um, other times they've always been in a multi-ethnic or predominantly white setting. So the black church may not feel like home or there are a lot of folks and we're just, we're just being real here, Tyler. There are a lot of folks who, who don't feel like they're getting what they were expecting um, in a black church, a traditional black church context. Now, hmm. whether that's legit or not, whatever, but that's how people are feeling, which makes the black church not the default. But I do think we need to analyze that. And I think, Part of what we do at The Witness and on past the mic is to try to uncover some of our hidden biases, some of the ways that we may have even absorbed uh, a colonized kind of Christianity that makes us now view the black church um, in the most accurate of ways. You know, that's a great question. It's a great consideration for us to think about. When I was listening or, or reading the sermon excerpt that they put in the New York Times article, I was like, man, wow, like I'd love to, you know, man, why did she go to that church? Why did she stay there? And the question I think is more layered than that, because one of the things I've been seeing is that black churches and black denominational Christianity, any sort of connection to um, the black church, because it's, it's really a layered, complex, nuanced phrase. You know, it's not just denominations that we're accustomed to, but it's non-denominational churches, Um, It's different types of expressions. And Black churches have to become very deft in the area of translation. So one of the things that I know, because I've grown up in the Black church, is for years, I didn't have any understanding as to why our liturgy was different. So when I went into a white majority context, or I went into like a place that was, you know, doing more of a Hillsong presentation or... Um, even if it's not seeker sensitive, more of a, a, a typical white evangelical church presentation, I felt it was refreshing only because I felt I understood it more. But that's because I'm, I've been Americanized. Mm. And so the Western ideas vibed with me. So I was like, oh, OK, the way that they're presenting this is more Western. Uh, you know, I may not have even, you know, consciously, cognitively said that. But I approached it from that lens of, oh, this is refreshing, whatever that may mean. And what I didn't hear a lot of was a lot of translation from my local church context as to why we do what we do. 
because there's an intergenerational struggle even within, and we're getting a little deep here, but just follow us. There's an intergenerational <laughs> struggle, I believe, within Black context, Black Christian context, to where if you ask questions, it's perceived as an insult. Mm. It's perceived as disrespect. And so I think Black churches and hybrids, young Black men and women who are operating in church ministry, who are preaching, who are teaching, we have to get deft at explaining the history of our liturgy. Why do we do this? And why is this powerful? Why is this something that is cathartic for us? But I think there also has to be a willingness to engage in that conversation because so many Black Christians are in this place of, hey, this is how we do it. There's power in what we're doing. Um, we believe in it. It's one of the the, the benefits of Black uh, denominations and Black churches is there's there's never a need to explain or apologize for what we do. Uh, we don't have to explain or apologize what we do. And in, in one sense, that's a strength because we don't we don't acquiesce to the white gaze. But in another sense, it's a weakness because we're not explaining to a younger generation why we do what we do. And we're just assuming that, oh, well, you just do it because you, you should do it. And the rise of the nuns and the rise of the NONES nuns and the rise of um, different um, uh, spiritual sects, whether it's uh, Black Hebrew Israelites or whether it's um, Five Percenters or whether it's Kemetic Science, uh, Egyptology, the rise of those things necessitates for us to really tap into the way in which our expression of Christianity really calls back to our heritage, really calls back to our roots. And I don't think we have a lot of those conversations. We just feel that we don't have to explain ourselves. And so when people come in, we say, hey, you know, here you are, and we'll welcome you and you'll sit down even as they did at Emmanuel um, with Dylan Roof. We'll welcome anyone. They can sit down. There's not, a, I've, I've not experienced a standoffishness, but it's more so been a lack of translation, which mm. can lead to sticking mm. and which can lead to a new destination. Does that make sense, Jamar? Yeah, I think there's the um, there's the need for every church tradition to translate for the the current generation or the next generation, and so a lot of it, you know, not only is there a quiet exodus from white churches just out into the wilderness for a lot of people, but there's also not even an entrance for an increasing number, particularly mm-hmm. of young black people, right? Uh, the, you know, I, I've gotten a couple messages and, and one in particular from a young black man who was, who was, he called me like an old preacher type. So I don't know what that you says are. About yeah, me. that's true, bro. That's absolutely true. <laughs> facts, facts only. Um, I'm not that old, but, uh, yeah. He, so, so, but he, but what he was saying was we don't need you, you old preacher types, because y'all ain't about nothing. You just about talking, blah, 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 no action. And so what he was advocating for was like this very socially engaged, activistic type of faith, which is, I mean, if you look at the civil rights movement, those were the kind of churches involved. I mean, I think it's important to recognize that even among black churches, only a tiny percentage were actively involved with the more confrontational public forms of protest, such as the boycotts or the marches or joining Mm -hmm. these organizations. Right. And so again, it goes to that inherently conservative or progressive part status quo or changing it. Um, And I think there are a lot of churches that black churches, maybe, maybe I'm just way off base, but maybe one of the reasons for the rise of the nuns among black people is the perception that 
churches are not are are, are too conservative. They're in, in terms of justice, right? Mm. In terms of they're not on the ground like Campaign Zero, like Black Lives Matter, right. like other non-church-based organizations. And so they're looking for something where they can live out their faith or even worse, they're not seeing a need for faith and they're just mm-hmm. living out this what they perceive as principles of justice and they don't even see a need for it to be church-based. So I think that's a question that, hmm. you know, a current generation of black pastors and leaders have to have to be constantly pondering. Yeah, I, I just want to shout out the, the chat in YouTube because it's popping. Um, okay. <laughs> so shout out to everybody in the chat. Um, the live chat. Thank you guys so much for interacting. And we're going to touch on some of these these points in the last 10-ish minutes that we have. You know, I find it very fascinating too, Jamar, that, you know, as we think about coalition, as we think about where we're going, we don't really have tenants. The only thing we seem to agree upon, and, you know, I found this because there's complexity. We're not a monolith. And, you know, the only thing I've, I've really found that we agree upon is ah, we're against racism and we're for justice. <laughs> It's got to be a little bit more than that, you know? And so I think we're like, man, we find camaraderie in the people who have had the same experiences that we have had. But what are the the tenets of the next path, the new path? What do we need? What are the tools that are going to get us to that destination? Um, So can you give us just a couple of those tools? Because I have some that I want to talk about as well. But can you give us some of those tools? Because I think it's really important for us to consider who will we be in a, in a sense? Because we, we're not necessarily going to all have the same denominational background. We're not going to land the same place on the secondary issues or the non-essentials, as they're called. We're not always always going to land there. But how do we gain a coalition together on certain core principles outside of these fundamentals that we all agree upon? So I, th- I think you'll probably have a lot of helpful things to add. The first thing that comes to my mind is a and I an idea of community and the necessity of community. So one of the things that continues to make the black church salient today is that it is a place of solidarity. You know that the other black folks there have a somewhat shared experience, at least in the racial sense of Mm -hmm. what it's like to be black in America, right? And so for that reason, um, and that's often a primary reason, people gravitate toward the black church. Uh, it's a place where you don't have to explain yourself, where you don't have to justify your own humanity and your own dignity. And so that's great. But we also have to sort of flesh out this idea of community because it can't just be coming to church on Sunday, right? Um, it's got to be a sort of lived solidarity. You know, Monday through Sunday, what does it look like for us to be a community, which is a particular challenge now that we are not now that we are able to move other places, right? When by law we were relegated to the ghetto and you had people of different classes, professions, different walks of life, black folks all in the same vicinity, that sense of community sort of grew up organically just by your geography. So now that we don't have that shared geography, how do we continue to cultivate a sense of community and solidarity? Um, mm-hmm. I think the witness and, and, and pass the mic are, are, are sort of, online and virtual ways to do that. But but how do we do that particularly from the church? Uh, so I think that's one of the sort of doctrines we need to flesh out about being Black Christians in the 21st century. Yeah, I, I'll say that a few things I think are very important. Um, the first is we have to embrace a decolonized discipleship. All right. um, 
Akemini Uwan talks about this. You know, she's a friend of the show. She's one third of Truth's Table, who was linked in this piece as well um, in the New York Times article. And you were linked as well, Jamar. Um, and so we want to shout you guys out um, for being linked in that. But Akemini Uwan talks about these, this whole idea of decolonized discipleship. And I think it really is important for us to develop a, a, a healthy framework. And I think this requires us, and I know it's it's kind of hard for us to say this because we're talking about white evangelicalism here, but it requires us to kind of disconnect from that conversation a little bit and start to build language and structure and infrastructure that equips people on how to think about the Black body as we're discipling people, as Fair we're that. witnessing to people, as Fair we're that. evangelizing. Um, it's going to require that. And it kind of leads to my second point, which I think we really need to reclaim. And that is this sense, I've been using this term a lot, and I don't know if people have probably used it before, but a holy defiance, mm. you know, a, a holy defiance. Come on, come on. We really need to reclaim that because there is a level in which we're afraid of stepping on toes because we don't want to lose something. You know, it, it's always about preservation. So we, we need to preserve this relationship, or we need to preserve this opportunity, or we need to preserve this friendship. And there's a level in which we should always be questioning and, and we should have um, kind of a community discussion about how we refer to things with grace and truth and wisdom. But there needs to be a sense of edge and holy defiance that says not, the, the Bible is clear on this. Amen. We need to stop having these equal conversations where we're going back and forth with people who don't believe that God is a God of justice. We need to stop having those conversations. We need to have a have a holy sense of defiance that says, no, 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 the Bible is clear and we're going to move on from this conversation. You know, what we're not going to do is argue about what God has already said within his word that we can point to. Now, if you don't see it, that's on you. We're praying for you. But we're not going to spend time here engaged um, unnecessarily with people who don't want to dignify us. That's right. Who don't want to affirm right. our dignity. We need to have a holy sense of defiance. That because God has accepted us in Christ and because he has already loved us in Christ, chosen us in Christ because of that, now we don't have to, to live on the roller coaster of human approval. We don't have to live on the roller coaster of evangelism. So if you don't want to go to those events, don't go. Don't feel like you got to go to the event because it's like, oh, man, well, this is unity. Now have some holy defiance to separate from that. And say, no, no, I'm going to go to an event that's going to prioritize the entirety of the implications of the holistic gospel, not just one part of it because, oh, well, these people are cool and we're friends and we're doing this. No, have some defiance, have some holy defiance to say, I'm going to skip that event. I'm going to skip this, this uh, collective. I'm going to stop going to this place. And, and you need to, you need to be in that place. But, you know, my third, my third point, and now I'll kick it to you, Jamar, is um, we need to have men and women who are willing to lead and take the hits to create places and spaces for people to go to. When they disconnect, we need spaces. Um, I was talking to somebody recently um, and she was on a trip with John Lewis and was on this pilgrimage with John Lewis. And I was like, you know, it's crazy. John Lewis is, is a living legend. And who's the next? Like who would lead a pilgrimage to Selma? Ooh, you know, who of our generation would do that? That's right. And there's like a hesitation. Like, man, you know, we don't think it's like, I, I mentioned some names. I was like, I don't really 
really think they're kind of like a unifying figure. So I don't really know if that's that's I mean, I respect their activism, but I don't really know if they would fit here. We need Christians, people of color who believe in Jesus, who believe in his word to step out by faith and take the necessary hits to create the spaces that we need to go to. And that's going to require you, you, you to be willing to let some stuff go. That's going to require you be, being willing to say no to some stuff. Um, and, and I think that's important because none of this decolonized discipleship, none of this holy defiance, none of this solidarity works in a vacuum. It has to work in a lived embodied space. And so where are we going to create that space and who's going to create that space? So if you're in a local context, a local city, create the space. That's right. If you That's feel right. if you feel like, man, I don't feel like I have any place to get with some people who vibe with what you're saying. And even if y'all don't go to the same body of fellowship, create a space where you can decompress, where you can That's have right. self-care, where you can be attentive to each other. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm gonna stop because I'm, I'm gonna keep going, but I think yeah, those yeah. are things that are very important for us to, to figure Man, out. I love that idea of holy defiance. Cause I think it pinpoints a whole bunch of what I've been going through the past year and a half, two years. And there were, there was a, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, how do I do this or that in my white church? And I'm just like, you know, there was a time when I would say, oh, well, think about this or try that. And I'm like, now I'm like, listen, what did you expect? In your predominantly white context, as you're trying to push these issues, which are hundreds of years old, right? what did you expect? And I'm not saying that to put anybody down or slander yeah, anybody. No, no, no. I'm just saying, like, you just have to be cognizant of the reality that what you're working against is much bigger than an individual. And what you're trying to see accomplished is, is a long, long, long-term project that, guess what, may not happen in that particular congregation. Like, can we just be honest about that? Because I think our understanding of racial reconciliation or reconciliation in general is messed up. Yeah. I think it's messed up because we believe that it requires black people being constantly sacrificed on the altar of whiteness. (laughs) And what, what that means, man, is that we constantly are putting ourselves up as these martyrs to be in fellowship with people or at least with leadership who don't see us and don't hear us or don't right. want to. That's and dangerous, saying, bro. That's, that's dangerous. That's, that's not, that's not what it should be like in the it's not reconciliation. That's not unity, that's not bro. Reconciliation. Nope. That is, that is accommodation in a lot of senses. And even though people are fighting against it, I'm just like, look, if that's your calling, if that's where you feel you need to be, or maybe you need a paycheck, I don't know why you're there, but yeah, just, so it, that's you know, a just great understanding, you know, just, that's just a great point. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. there are a lot of people who are, and we talked about this before the, before the, the broadcast, there are a lot of pe- of us who are practitioners and we're practitioners and we minister in spaces to where it's like, man, we have to think about the implications of, of power and financial resources as we even make these decisions. So we have to think about our, our children in the sense of like, man, are we going to have anything to pass down to them? And so we we accept certain you know places for you know a year or two years or three years or what have you you know so that we can build upon you know what we really want to do we do what we have to do before we do what we want to do and so those are implications even as well as how we interact with those or, or the lack of opportunities or the pipelines or you know the connections that we have those are real considerations that we have to think about presently. Um, so I, I sympathize with those people who 
um, including myself, who are practitioners, who are having to figure out, like, what do we do next? Um, but, but I think what we see is that the Lord always, uh, okay, let me take it back to, to how we say it in my hood, okay, in, in, in my church. If God gives you the vision, he going to give you the provision too. So if God gives you the, the plan and the mission, he going to fund the plan and the mission. We have to trust a little bit that God's right. going to look out for us. All right. Even if we, hey, we're not going to be balling, we're not going to have the roles, but God going to look out for you. I believe it. And so we have to now kind of take our, our mindset out of a human eyes. We, yo, we live by faith, Amen. not by sight, you know? So Amen. anyway, yeah. I, 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 I do want to ask one more question because people have even talked about this in the chat. Um, one thing before I, I get to this, if you want to hear about more about decolonized discipleship, um, go to systematictheology.com, S-I-S-T-A-matictheology.com. And Ekemeni um, Uwan talks about that. You can Google the article, Decolonized Discipleship with her name. Um, but people have talked about, in closing, what would you say to, to people of color and by extension, white Christians you know, who have, who have decided to remain in these evangelical spaces, particularly in the multi-ethnic context. So I, I want you to talk specifically about the multi-ethnic context, because I think we, we kind of hear a lot about the white evangelical space and Campbell Robertson's article really talks about that. But I think we need to press into some more of these, these complexities as it relates to multi-ethnicity and how that works out in reality in the body of Christ. So talk a little bit about that for people who have been called to, to be there. I think a great resource, if you are in a multi-ethnic context that will help give you some realistic expectations, is called, um, I think it's People of the Dream uh, by Coriel Edwards, K-O-R-I-E. Yeah, it is. Edwards. Um, that book is really helpful. It puts words to what I think a lot of minorities in multi-ethnic settings feel which is essentially that the pace of change when it comes to race is often dictated by how comfortable white people are with the proposed changes. And sure. so whether that's music or preaching style or guests you have come or topics you, you approach in Sunday school or how you talk about current events, those things tend to be uh, bounded by how fast white people feel comfortable going on those topics which at the end of the day can, can really feel disempowering uh, for minorities right. because it's like, mm -hmm. does my, how much does my presence here matter? Um, or is it, you know, in a lot of cases, as I've heard people talk about multi-ethnic context, you know, this, is it more about white people feeling good that they're in a diverse church setting or is it really about racial equity and justice, which is going to force some very different changes than what we see from, traditional white evangelical churches, uh, which a lot of these folks mm. in multi-ethnic contexts are coming from. Uh, so we got to acknowledge that reality. But if you are in that setting, um, like you're saying, man, you got to carve out a space because even a multi-ethnic church can be draining. And so where are those mm -hmm. points of contact with other people who you can experience true solidarity with, where you can let it all hang out and say, girl, you won't believe what this person just said. Or right. I can't believe that the pastor preached on this or didn't preach on that. And just a place to sort of not to slander anyone or anything like that, but to find rejuvenation, to lament together, as well as celebrate together. You know, who's that crew you're going to go see Black Panther with? Because, you know, they're going to be just as lit as you are about it. Right. Uh, do you have that same crew 
when it comes to sort of your spiritual nourishment as well. So mm. it goes back to community, uh, what you were saying before. And so, and then just being realistic. Like, I think, I think we pierce ourselves with many sorrows by hoping and wishing that our multi-ethnic community is going to be something that it, it may not be right. equipped to be. Yeah. I think you really touched on uh, a great point as, as, and not just for spaces, to respond to conflict or to respond to hurt and pain, but spaces of celebration. That's right. Um, I think we have to create those. And I think you can create those in many different ways, but I think it requires us to think outside of the the traditional evangelical box to say we will create spaces where we can just have intra-community conversations, intra-racial conversations. And I find that sometimes there's this pressing within a multi-ethnic context to force diversity in every area. So there has to be, you know, it's every home group and it's every this, and that that makes sense in some ways, but in other ways, it kind of neglects the intra-community conversation instead of just the inter-community conversation. And then I think it's important for us to acknowledge, you know, for for those of you who are called in those spaces, um, I say this respectfully because I don't want it to make it seem like I'm dismissing multi-ethnic churches because I'm not. I think they're they're in many ways uh, fascinating and they're great pictures of the gospel and what the gospel can do. But multi-ethnic churches are not magic. They're not magic. And I think sometimes we believe that optics are more important than true equity. And so we get addicted to these optics. Like, look at how, look at how diverse this is and look at how this is and look at, wow, this is amazing. And, and so we think the optics prove something when in reality, there's more under the surface. Don't go into a multi-ethnic church expecting to be magically reconciled with everyone. You know, if you think that just because there's a presence of multiple ethnicities within a church context, then now all of a sudden that church is, is equitable. You're, you're kidding yourself. Um, there was recently an article about a church in Greenville, South Carolina, Redemption Church, where a very famous pastor, John Gray, is now um, is the black pastor. He's actually taking over for a white pastor, Ron Carpenter. And they did this very interesting reveal in that multi-ethnic church of how they're split along lines of political and social issues. But on Sunday mornings, it's great. I mean, man, uh, the, I mean, it's amazing. It's great. But on, on Monday through Saturday, there's still this tension. Mm. And I've heard some people say, oh, well, let's not even go into that tension because we're unified. And I think that's half discipleship. You're, you're only half discipling people and you're only discipling people in a place of comfort. That's very American. And so I think we should acknowledge that multi-ethnic churches are not magic and that's not a diss to them. That's just the same with black churches. That's the same with any sort of, of church expression. They're not magic. And so we shouldn't approach them that way. We should approach them as tools that can be used to bring unity and can be used to disciple people more fully into the implications of the gospel. That's going to be very important because if you go in thinking, oh man, this is going to be beautiful and you know, there's going to be this appreciation. And, and do I want to touch on this? <laughs> I'll say this because it's, because it's women's, women's history month. Um, black women in multi-ethnic churches Ooh. are often highly mistreated. I'll Ooh. just say that. Okay. Say often highly mistreated because they're not, they're misinterpreted and they're not seen as viable candidates for marriage. And they're not seen as, as um, attractive by black or white men or any Ooh. other ethnicity. Of men. So black men in those contexts are, are fascinated with, with other ethnicities. And so they come in and don't pay black women. Any, I'm just, I'm telling you, I've seen it. 
and they don't, they don't pay any attention to the women, to the black women. And so they're left feeling lonely and empty in a place where they're not affirmed and their beauty is not recognized and acknowledged. Be careful. Be careful. Your church, your church, if it's multi-ethnic, should be, should be a place where black women um, feel dignified and feel safe. And yeah. they should have a place um, to fully explore what God has called them to do. So I'll I stop before imagine. I get in even more trouble. I'll stop. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very, it's a rich topic. It's a complicated and, and, and very worthy topic. And before folks listening sort of jump to a reaction, center the experience and perspectives of black women. That's who we're talking about. We're not talking about, um, you know, anybody's individual particular perspective. We're talking about the experiences of black women. That's that's what we need to focus on and pay attention to and respond to. So, man, I, I I'm telling you, in a colonized mentality, in a colonized you know, mentality, in, in a colonized mentality, that was that was me. I was fascinated, fascinated with other ethnicity. Look how beautiful this be. Your babies will be beautiful, and you'll do this and you'll do that. And it's like, whoa, c- careful now. You know, <laughs> that's a whole careful. other episode, bro. Yeah, it is. Okay, um, I'm gonna stop. Okay. Well, anyway, we gone too long anyway. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's good it's good topic Um, man thank you guys so much for tuning in um what are your thoughts the chat was popping um go to the ptm facebook group and talk about it respond to it um this might be episode that gets us in trouble i didn't know we were going to touch on all this jamar this is (laughs) but you know anything for the people trying to create that space that you were talking about right so let's just, we're just having Let's a conversation. We're not pronouncing this as, as scripture or something, but we're just giving our opinions, especially as we've interacted with folks Absolutely. around the country, as we've experienced it ourselves. So look, if we can't talk about it here and we can't talk about it now, then when and where? You know, So that's, that's what we're trying to do. You may agree, may disagree. That's cool. We just having a conversation. We're just talking, man. Um, so thank you guys so much for tuning in. Follow us again uh, on Twitter at underscore pass the mic. And again, Dallas, second stop of the PTM live tour. Um, One of the reasons why we have the PTM live tour. So the things that we've said here about hearing and seeing your pain, hearing and seeing the fact that you are mourning, we want to actually be able to say that to you face to face. Yes, Um, We actually want to be able to embrace you. And we actually, in, in many of our tour stops, we've had people come up to us in tears and say, you know, I drove three hours or I drove however long just so I could see you face. And that means so much to us. Yeah. Um, that means so much to us. So Dallas, Saturday, um, April 7th at Life Point Church at 3 p.m. We want y'all um, to come out for our 200th episode that we're recording. We also got some surprises for y'all. I'm excited for you guys to experience some stuff that we haven't done before. I'm excited to try that out. And of course, we have the podcast tomorrow, podcast miniseries called Once Upon a Time in Wakanda, season one, full season coming out tomorrow. And you can follow us at Wakanda Podcast or WakandaPodcast.com for more information. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Pass the Mic. Peace.